This is the Future X Podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. This is the Future X Podcast. I'm Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Dr. Rob Eschman, a writer, scholar, filmmaker, and educator from Chicago. He is an associate professor of social work and a member of the Data Science Institute at Columbia University, as well as a faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. His new book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age, is a comprehensive study of how racism manifests online and it highlights the anti-racist tactics rising to oppose it. He blends deep research with personal stories. It's a great read. Dr. Eshman, thanks for joining me on the show today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So how are online experiences with racism different from in-person experiences? You know, I think in person, what has happened, and if we think about racism before the the classical civil rights movement, or you know, before Jim Crow ended, and it was open, it was in your face, it was legal, and so people could mm. be, um, you know, they didn't have to hide racism. It was the law of the land, and it was seen as being normal and natural. Um, but after the legal changes from the classical civil rights movement, and and racism and discrimination, you know, is is now illegal. Um, if you say something openly racist, you may be able to get fired from your job. Um, you can get in trouble, right? And so that means that the the language that people use to describe racial differences or to express racism has changed. It has become from it's moved from being overt to being more subtle to being more covert. And so the norm, the things that we experience in mainstream situations, it is the normal way of expressing racism is through more you know subtle type of uh, of, of interactions. Um, and what happens online is that people feel less of a need to be subtle with their racism. Um, and, you know, that because of anonymity, there's a perceived um, distance between the things you do online and real life consequences. Um, and then we also know that just there's something called the online disinhibition effect and just not looking a human in the eye and, and communicating with them online, people tend to become more hostile. And this is in all types of discussions, not just talking about race. But when you put this kind of online disinhibition effect and increased hostility and, you know, and you combine it with discussions about race, things tend to get ugly. So I think online expressions or overtly um, hostile expressions of racism are a lot more common. Um, and this this for many people is a big change and shift in the way that that they experience racism. And for scholars and people who think about racism, it's just a different form of racism than we thought. Right. That, that, that most people thought they were dealing with. Um, in the 21st century. So I want to link this to geography and the geography-less, geography-free aspect of online communication. It's my bias that I would think, oh, well, people in the South are racist and people in the North are not. You know, something, I know that's a ridiculous statement, but it's something that I could, if I just did a snap judgment, I might think that. It's interesting to me to hear you say that there's been a progression, and I want to know if I'm hearing this right. There's been a progression from overt to more covert racism. Mm-hmm. I, did I hear that right? You know, in the real world. You did. So mm-hmm. uh, in the 1940s, 90% of people would say, yes, I think that interracial marriage should be, uh, should be banned. 
in the 2000s, only about 5% of people would say, yes, I think interracial marriage should be banned. And so this is a big change in, in a measured racial attitude. And so there are different ways of interpreting that. Some people would see that as just being progress. It means people are less racist. But I think other folks who are sociologists and think think deeply and critically about, about racism think that racism has not gone away. It's just people are better at filling out surveys. They know not to click the wrong answer, which is the racist answer. And so then it becomes a struggle for, you know, activists, educators, you know, um, scholars to figure out how do we identify racism when it's being hidden, when it's masked. Um, and, and so I think that that is that is something that, that lots of people have figured out very smart ways to do over the over the last half century. Um, in terms of location online, right, to get to your question, th- that is a that is a very interesting point. And I think that a lot of times when we see racism online, we can rationalize it away and we can say, oh, you know, that maybe this is someone in the KKK who's hiding in the YouTube comments. But that's not that doesn't reflect the real world. They are the ones who are in a bubble. But then there are other examples of things happening where online racism is unmasked. And then we, we realize, oh, no, it's right where we live. And so one example of that, um, in chapter four of my book, actually, um, I, I do a case study of a college campus where there was a, a website that students would post on anonymously. But in order to post on the website, you had to be connected to the university. So you had to have that, that edu email address. The moderators had to accept your comment and then post them anonymously. And what ended up happening is that you have all kinds of horrific, racist and homophobic content that's being posted online. But your students were unable to say, oh, these are from the racists in the South who the right kind of the stereotypical assumption we would make about racists. Oh, these are people who are ignorant or uneducated or backwards. But no, these are people from the same college that I'm going to school with. These are my peers Mm. who are who are making the kind of statements that I would assume belong someplace else geographically, but really are a part of my community. And so this is a right, this is an incident that really changed the way that a lot of folks of color thought about racism on campus because it, it, it revealed that these attitudes that had been hidden and that were thought to have died were really alive and strong and just but you know, he had folks who felt like they couldn't say these things out loud, but they had not changed the way that they thought about those things. And this is because of anonymity, you think? Is, and not just you think, but the research shows. Because of anonymity and, and the, the context and the sort of contextlessness of online life. Is that the why behind this or something else is going on? Yeah, so, I, so, so part of that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sensing a deeper question of like, where does the racism come from? And I'm not going to say that the racism just comes from anonymity, but I think that there is a there are key differences that different social settings could make it normal for people to behave in different ways. So if you go to school or you work at a job in a place where you would get in trouble for saying racist things, you won't say those things. But then if you are in a space where you feel safe around some friends who you think share the same values, then you may say something different than how you be- behave in public. And that right there, there's a study of this. Um, it's called two, Two-Faced Racism Theory, where college students were given journals and they were told to write down different you know, conversations that they had throughout the day. And it was found that people talk about race very differently in public versus in private. So on the front stage, they have a, kind of a public-facing way of being and way of talking about race. But in private, when they felt more safe, then that's when the racist jokes come out. That's when their true feelings about politics or, or you know, um, different th- social things in the news come out. And so absolutely feeling separated from the norms that make overt racism, you know, uh, uh, um, taboo 
in everyday life, feeling separated from them online can 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 provide a context where people feel more comfortable uh, um, expressing racist views or, you know, there's other race, other research on um, white supremacist groups organizing online. And so right, people who have this hidden racism that they can't talk about, they may go online and look for communities where people think like mm-hmm. them and where they can feel like, oh, okay, I'm not crazy, that this is something that, that is a, you know, a logical way of, of viewing the world and, 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 you know, finding more support for those problematic beliefs. So what I'm hearing, there's really a lot going on here. There's the one point is white supremacist groups can find like-minded people and feel comfortable in that environment to express more overtly racist views. And there's also just the way the online world is where there's a lack of eye contact, there's less decreased empathy. You feel like you could say even the bad things that are held in your heart, but you can kind of let them out. Do I have that mm-hmm. right? This is something that lots of people have experienced and understand about the Internet, that things can get nasty. Um, and, and part of what I try to do in the mm-hmm. book is really understand what are the consequences of these changes. So I do talk about the, co- the causes of the changes. What is it that makes online discussions of race and in-person discussions of race so different? But then I also want to think about the consequences. How does this affect people? How does it affect their mental health? How does it affect the way that they view the world? How does it affect the way that they think about their peers? And so, right, in talking with, 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 with students, so I interview, um, you know, 86 students from around the country. And, and, and those stories, the students tell me, really drive kind of the, the, the book and, and, and really help us understand what these changes in racial discourse mean for regular everyday people. I should say that and take a pause here to say how wonderful the book is in blending your personal stories, stories of your students, the research. It's a very, it's totally absorbing, worth the read to connect all those things. And you do a great job of that. Thank you. Just wanted to bring that in. And so I didn't, didn't let that zoom bias. I worked very hard where the, the research behind this book is very robust, but I worked very hard to not write it as an academic book. I did not want this to just be mm-hmm. something that only, you know, people in academia or, or other scholars wanted to read. And so I, I, I worked very hard to make it something that was accessible and hopefully fun and interesting to read, a, a call to action. Um, but then also is, you know, based on, on um, some of the most rigorous methods that we have. So from interviews to surveys to doing social media analytics at a large scale. Yeah, great. It really shows, too. It's wonderful. I want to talk about this, the concept of colorblindness, because what some listeners may be thinking is, hey, wait a minute. I thought, you know, we elected a black president. We don't see color anymore. We're okay. We're okay now. But the message coming through in your book and some others that I've read recently, and Ibram Kendi's work and lots of other books that are, you know, from 2020 on, really, and maybe before, they start to talk about, you know, this is always, there's an institutional racism that's always been there. And in the white world, we thought, oh, we figured that out. If we just don't talk about it, if we just don't refer to race at all, everything is fine. Uh, And you talk about that in these other books I've mentioned, White Fragility talks about that other books. So has, just to be clear on this, has the internet brought out this terrible cancer of racism all over again? Or has it always been there? And now we are able to see it either through discovery of white supremacist groups or 
the existence of black Twitter or other ways of seeing what maybe the white world didn't see as well? Uh, Absolutely. It is something that has always been there. Um, It's not something that is only coming out because of the Internet. Mm -hmm. It is being revealed because of the Internet. So, so, you know, something that I talk about in the book is masked racism and the ways that racism is embedded in everyday institutions, policies, programs and interactions, but without many people being able to see it. And when I say many people, I think that folks of color who are on the receiving end of racism, we, we notice subtle racism. I think that people who study racism, people who teach about racism, lots of people know where racism has been living while it's been subtle, but it's been masked and other people right, may not have the same ability to kind of see through the subtlety. Um, and now we have this unmasking of racism online, which means now people are able to see what was there, right? Po- uh, police violence against black people existed before there was a video, right? Before there were videos of black folks being hurt and killed by police that would go viral. And so this is something that was known in our community for decades, that, that right, things have been happening. We think about the Black Panther Party originated as following around police to make sure that kids in the neighborhood weren't getting beat up. And so this is something that has been happening that 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 we have known about, but has become, uh, you know, like the it, when it goes viral, then people who don't have this as their everyday reality are able to see, oh, the world is not as I thought that it was. And that's how you get many more people kind of on the anti-racist bandwagon of of of. And I don't use that term in a negative in a negative way. I mean that in terms of people who want to start fighting racism because they only realize they only just realize that it is still around so absolutely uh, um um you know racism has been there in terms of color blindness and this idea that i don't see color and if we don't talk about it then it won't be a problem so th- this is a problematic way of thinking about what it means to be anti-racist is to think that it it, it necessitates being colorblind um, because what happens is so silence is racism's best friend mm-hmm. if we don't talk about racism then we don't know that it's there, um, right? And so if, if we decide that it is taboo mm-hmm. to have conversations about racism, then the folks of color who are being hurt by racism don't have an opportunity to share about their experiences, which means that things stay the same. And so this is one of the things that, right, so the book, it, it's called When the Hood Comes Off Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. So the the racism is, is one mm-hmm. piece, but the other piece is how are folks of color using digital tools to challenge racism in new and innovative ways. And one of those ways are breaking the silences. So the most common, right, so microaggressions is kind of a buzzword now. It refers to subtle forms of, of, of racism. The most common way that the research says to respond to microaggressions is just to not respond, right? So silence is the norm. And what happens when you're silent in mm-hmm. the face of a microaggression? Mm-hmm. It means that everyone around thinks that that is an okay way to behave. They think that this subtle racist joke is fine. No one needs to challenge it. They don't realize that this is causing harm, that, right, that, that experiences with microaggressions have negative health impacts mm-hmm. on folks of color. And um, when you, but, but if you think about what happens online, and one of the things I talk about in Chapter 5 is this new, right, right, when students share the ways that they respond to microaggressions online versus in person and looking at some of those differences, um, that, that students online feel much more comfortable challenging microaggressions talking back to microaggressions. 
And this is a communal project. It's a collective project. So it's never the responsibility of one person to speak out. But it's, it's if anyone in the community has the energy that day, then they're able to support everyone by saying no thank you to these harmful interactions. And so I think that, that this idea of colorblindness and not seeing color as being the solution is problematic. And what it really does, it is it, it, it legitimates kind of the way that racist systems do harm to communities of color. Um, and and only through mm-hmm. you know challenging colorblind interpretations of the law, of right of, of that we treat people differently in society, that only through challenging colorblind interpretations are we able to reveal how racism works, the hidden mechanisms of racism, and then and then you know work to to fix the you know um, the the way that 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 our system um, you know provides unequal treatment and opportunities based on the color of our skin. Thank you. That's a great explanation. And it, and that leads me into the, the notion of online communities, and specifically mm-hmm. black Twitter. I hadn't really thought about the p- pervasiveness of online communities that can really call out other communities. It was something I hadn't really thought about, I have to say. And I spend a lot of time online and think about being online a lot. So first of all, online communities like black Twitter what is or was Black Twitter? Mm-hmm. Well, definitely not was. It's still Black Twitter is still here. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and uh, so Black Twitter is, and and I'm, I take my definitions from Andre Brock, Trusty uh, Cottom, um, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, and and Black Twitter is a, a a space where Black folk get together and perform Blackness online, and that um, can can. You know, um, part of that is going to be challenging racism and highlighting ways that racism is pervasive in society. Another part of that is just collectively enjoying popular culture. Um, and so, the, you know, mm-hmm. think the hashtags from Black Lives Matter to say her name to um, Thrones, y'all, which is about the Game of Thrones TV show, all come out of black Twitter. And so, right, you have this kind of wide mm-hmm. range of, of, of things that comes out of black Twitter. Um there was some concern of what would happen when um, Elon took over Twitter, and I think that right, we we you know we there is research that showed some spikes in in um, the use of racist language um, after you know Elon took mm-hmm. over. But I don't think that that will stop Black Twitter because uh, Black Twitter and before Black Twitter, other online Black communities, Black folks have been figuring out ways to use technology to engage in the sharing of counter narratives for a long time. So before Twitter existed, there were black bloggers mm. who who were, were challenging dominant understandings of social policies online. And it, 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 would, it will continue even if they were locked out of Twitter. But they're not locked out of Twitter. Um, I think Twitter is, a uni- is unique among the um, social, social network or blogging platforms because for a while, Jack Dorsey was very interested I mean, you think about this because um, Black Lives Matter is the most used hashtag of all time on Twitter, right? Jack Dorsey seemed to be interested in creating tools that would help black activists um, use social media, that would benefit them, starting with the organizing in Ferguson on. And that seemed like it was a, a, a unique, where the people at the top wanted to support the movement. But even if the people at the top don't want to support the movement, um, the people still have access to the platform and are going to be able to use it in a way that is that is um, you know that 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 does support the movement 
um, for black lives. And so I don't think that, that Elon taking over is going to, to um, kill black Twitter, but Twitter is alive and mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, I, 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 I learn from, from black Twitter all the time, and, and, and I think it's something that has um, given voice to marginalized folks who do not have voice everywhere. And, and I think that has been huge in terms of changing the, the national, you know, um, vocabulary and ways that we understand racism um, and how it works and the, and the ways that we decide to get together and challenge racism. What about this idea of marginalized communities finding a voice on social media? It seems incredibly important. And there have been revolutions in the world. There have been, you know, dictatorships have been overthrown. And also uh, racism has been called out. And we've seen more instances of racism. There's been more of a public reporting of racism, Mm -hmm. especially online. I assume there's no downside to that. Yes, it's all good. Uh, well, let, let me answer the first part before at answering whether it's all good. But 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 one yeah. of the key differences with social media versus other mainstream forms of media is the gatekeepers. Um, with 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 kind of traditional forms mm-hmm. of media, you have institutional gatekeepers that decide what stories are told, who gets a voice, and historically, black folks, right. folks of color are not given a voice all the time. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is kind of the the strategy, that one of the strategies of organizers during the classical civil rights movement was to get the attention of traditional media outlets, to get them to, sh- to tell their story. And that when you had videos of, of dogs attacking, you know, peaceful protesters and people being hit with fire hoses, that these are things that, that um, had a big impact on the way folks not just in the country, but around the world, thought about America and our and 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 its policies, and um, but but you know to some extent, folks were dependent on traditional media outlets deciding to tell the story that the things that were happening had not changed, but they one day decided, okay, we'll air this. One one thing that we see with social media is that organizers and activists don't have to wait for gatekeepers to allow them to share their narrative; that they can use social media to share it immediately and, um, and, and to large effect. And so one of the studies that I like to cite um, is by a friend of mine, Jacob Groshek, where they found that during the organizing in Ferguson, um, the biggest hubs for information sharing were black activists on the ground, not traditional media outlets. And so this is a, that really shows a shift in power where black folks, black Twitter, black activists were, you know, are forcing the issue. They force things into the national conversation when mainstream media or traditional media outlets may prefer, no, no, let's be colorblind. And then, and then you know, activists are, are able to say, no, we're not going to be colorblind. And here's why. And, 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 and it, it just, it just get, puts more power in the people's hands that we can decide what goes viral. We can decide what to bring attention to. Um, and, and I think that that has been huge in terms of, of you know, bringing racism to the attention of people around the world who did not know it was as big of a problem as it is. Now, the second part of your question, is this all good? Is I, I don't know if I could say it's all good because I think that social media has the power to amplify marginalized voices, but that can also be marginalized voices for evil. And that's part of right this kind of 
um, you know, these far-right mm-hmm. extremist, you know, groups are, are becoming more visible. And part of that is that they are also taking advantage of social media technologies and, and um, you know, that small groups of people can have a big voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that, so, so I think that you see both sides of, uh, you know, the coin there were on one, right, that marginalized groups, communities of color are able to use technology to amplify their voices, but so are racists. Now, the question is, is this an equal push and pull? And what I argue in my in my book is it is not an equal push and yes. pull because racism right, needs silence in order to survive. Right. In a, in a society where we think racism is bad, it's easier for right for to, to maintain racist policies when no one realizes that they're racist. And so, you know, my my perspective is that the more we see racism, the more people are going to want to fight against it. Thinking about communities online a little bit more deeply. And this is kind of an awkward question for me to ask as a white person, but it came up as I was reading the book and I want to have a go at it. And you should tell me if I go off track or anything. But according to your research and according to your personal experiences, how do people of color respond differently or do they respond differently to racism in person versus Mm -hmm. online? Mm -hmm. So this is one of the, right? So so I, I got into this a little bit in terms of thinking about um, responding to microaggressions is that in person there are different barriers to responding to microaggressions. The it may right the racism may happen so quickly that you didn't realize it was racism until you know you talk with a friend about it afterwards. You may not know how to respond. You may be scared of the social or you know physical consequences of responding. That you may feel unsafe in responding. You may feel like you would lose a friend if someone thinks that you are too sensitive or too militant. Um, and, and, you know, um, taking a joke too seriously. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these right reasons that keep people from speaking out when they experience racism in person. Online, um, one of the key differences, it, right, 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 that we have kind of a different, a, a different setting that these interactions take place in that negate a lot of the reasons why people don't want to respond in person. So this um, um, not knowing what to say that someone else can say it for you. If it's done in a in a public, right, if this is kind of you're responding to racism that's done in a public setting on a Facebook wall, on social media, in a, in a comment, then someone else who sees it can be the one to challenge that racism. If you're not sure if it was racist or not, mm-hmm. and you want to go talk to someone about it, timing works differently where this is, right, in person, conversations happen in real time. Online, someone can take 10 minutes to calm themselves down to think about what happened and then really, really put thought into to their response. And you may not have that time in person. Right. Um, and so I think that there are different opportunities that online communication provides for responding to racism that are di- right, that, 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 that really change the dynamics and even power structures that that um, whereas folks of color may feel a sense of fear of responding in person online. The races can't attack them, so they can say something back. And then online, you also have this shift in power where when you have a, a community of people who are responding to racism, that they can put pressure on racists or on, on folks who engage in an act of racism in a way that, that that person may not feel pressure in the real world when they are backed by mainstream institutions. And so online, we right, like the, the black folks can put pressure on people to, to realize, hey, you got to get your act together because we don't think that the, what you just did was appropriate. This might be a good time to bring in the digital dualism fallacy, because uh, and this is a concept that I've read about in your book and from a researcher. We've been talking a lot about how the online world and the real life world are are different and 
their different environments. But they're also kind of a mix, kind of a messy mix, kind of a augmented reality where these lives are overlapping quite a bit. I think, right, the, the, so some people would say that, oh, things that happen online are not real. These are not real people. These are not real conversations. What matters are the things that happen in the real world. And then you get online researchers who study the real world and study, uh, or excuse me, who study things online and study the effects of, of things that happen online on real world outcomes from mental health to educational outcomes, et cetera. And so I think that, that this idea of augmented reality um, comes from an understanding of we're, right, these are not two distinct worlds where we take a break from real life to go live in our online world, mm. that our lives are mixed. These things come together. And that is, um, that's part of the reason why I started the study on a college campus, is because I see this as being a place to really study the augmented reality of race and racism, where when you post something on Sunday night, the people in class in your class on Monday likely have seen it. You know, college students tend to be friends across you know, the, the you know, mm-hmm. different boundaries. And so I think that that means that we're able to really analyze and, and understand the connection between online behaviors and incidents and real world behaviors and incidents, physical world behaviors and incidents, and seeing the ways that they, 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 they are really connected. Um, and so I do, uh, right, and, and, and so um, in terms of me going different places to get data to tell the story of this book, this is why I talk to people about their experiences in the physical world, about mm-hmm. their experiences online. But I also do Twitter analysis of millions of tweets over a decade to look in, and see some of the, the things that I found mm-hmm. through interviews. How did they play out um, online and, and how have things changed over time? And so I think um, that, 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 you know, really wanting to tell a story about our augmented reality is the reason why I have these these very data sources in order to 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 you know um be be responsible in the the way that I'm I'm talking about and thinking about how online communication ch- how online communication changes the way that we experience understand and respond to racism. We've talked a little bit about activism and uh, the latter part of the book talks a lot about activism and I just want to be sure we've covered the best stuff. Uh, are there more examples of the ways that activists are using, can use online media to incite change and mm-hmm, educate mm-hmm. people? You know, I think uh, there's been a lot written on the large-scale activism online, from the big hashtags to, um, you know, uh, um, how how online organizing is connected to uh, activism in the real world. So the uprisings in, in 2020 um, really showed uh, that when you have half a million people marching on, on June 6th. And, and I think that that story is something that's been told. And that is a part, right? I, I do talk about it some in the book. But I really wanted to focus less on the large-scale events that I think we have a good understanding of, and more on how does online communication change how regular, everyday people engage with racism online. And so one thing that I found is that lots of young people, through just replying to racism online, through learning about racism online, develop activist identities, where they see the work of responding to racism and challenging racism, you know, not in a way that the world sees it through a hashtag, but just in a way that their friends see it. They see that as a form of activism that changes how Mm -hmm. their communities think about racism, Mm 
um, and really start to change the norms of what are the types of things that are acceptable in our community and that students are, you know, um, taking control of those things. And, and if administrators won't give it to them, then they take it for themselves and creating, you know, uh, um, um, you know, systems of of kind of informal consequences for saying racially problematic things on campus when students don't get in trouble for it, but online there may be social consequences. And so I think that um, that is part of the story I tell is that you, we, we see these large scale events, what is happening on the ground and really looking at the way that people's lives are changing through um, different forms of online activism and how that you know, not only is connected to traditional forms of civic engagement, but then also is challenging and, and, and maybe extending some of the ways that we think about activism among young people. What I'm hearing is there's a lot of value in these small course corrections, these constant feedback loops, and they don't have to be the big hashtags. They can be smaller, everyday right. things. Yes? That's right. I think that the, uh, the way I like to think about that is... Subtle everyday forms of racism are like scaffolding that upholds white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And the more that we challenge those things, the more we're dismantling the the um, kind of the understandings, the justifications of a, an, an unjust system. And I think that every right that, that I don't think interpersonal challenges to racism are enough. I think that racism is systemic and we we need to think about you know, societal level changes. But I think that, that when we, that, that there is a, a definite impact of folks speaking out um, in person and those kind of everyday forms of, of, of activism interpersonally and, 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 and how they affect the people around you and how they, you know, affect the, the rationales for subtle forms of, of racist behaviors. Um, so one of the things we found is that when people witness someone else respond to racism, that can reduce the harm that racism has on their mental health outcomes from depression, anxiety, and feelings of stress. And so these are things that have a, have a protective impact on your community when you decide to challenge racism. And every time you challenge racism again, it's, 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 uh, um, so, so one of the forms of organizing um, um, that we talk about is transformative organizing, which is about changing the way that people view the world and introducing new and radical possibilities for how the world might be different. And so, you know, part of these activist efforts are transformative, that people change the way that they think about race and racism. That I had one student say that, um, you know, she uh, used to be Stacey Dash and now she's Fight the Power. And it's this idea of through engaging in online, um, you know, taking in online materials about race and racism, really changing your your consciousness in the way that you think about race in the world. That's positive, and that's wonderful in that way. There's so much, really, to talk about in this book. It's so rich, and we've really barely scratched the surface in our 37-minute interview. I'm wondering if there's anything else that we should cover now that you'd like to talk about. This is a moment where we need to be thinking about how technology, you know, impacts the conversations that we have about race and racism. I think things are changing very rapidly. So from, a, you know, attacks on critical race theory or really just talking about race in schools to, right, the, the, to um, you know, mm -hmm. continued organizing efforts to, to, to stop anti-black police violence. 
I think that we are living in a time where these the, these problems are front and center and they're out in the open. And this is a this is a, a moment of truth for us as a society to decide what way to go when the racists are, uh, you know, seemingly, um, you know, starting to tell us when they're racist as opposed to hiding it the way that they have been for a long time. And so I think that we have lots of work to do, but I am optimistic um, that, that as more people, you know, see what racism looks like, the more people will join the fight. The name of the book is When the Hood Comes Off. It's an amazing book. Please get it. You can find it on Amazon and at the University of California Press. And where can people find you, Professor, online? I'm on Twitter at Rob Eshman, and I'm on Instagram at Rob.Eshman. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. This was great. Thank you for having me. This was a, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on the Future X Podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about Future X, visit futurex.studio.